This is a podcast from CSIS, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. For more, visit CSIS.org. Well, hello. My name is Karen Meacham. I'm the Dean of the Abshire Inamori Leadership Academy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm also the Director of Educational Outreach. I'm speaking today to Dr. Kenneth Goodman, who is co-director of the University of Miami's Ethics Program, including its Business Ethics Program. Uh, He's also founder and director of the Bioethics Program and its Pan American Bioethics Initiative. Hello, Dr. Goodman. Hi, thank you. So as we delve into the issue of ethics, um, why are ethics important today and what should we expect of our leaders, whether in government, the private sector, or civil society? So the reason we care about this, and perhaps the reason we ought to care about this, is that history shows that when people try and guide themselves, when nations try and guide themselves, when businesses try and guide themselves, they need some sort of some sort of beacon, some sort of map, some sort of navigational toolkit, a sextant that says, why, why do we want to go here and not there? Uh, boy, the, if, if we base an economy on slavery, for example, then that would, be, that would cut labor costs a lot, right? Uh, and, and we come to recognize sooner or later, unfortunately very often later, that there are certain ways that we proceed where we ought not to have. Uh, slavery was wrong, and any economy that was based on slavery was therefore illicit and corrupt. But enough people did not see that at the time to be able to make sound decisions about economic development. Uh, other forms of, of exploitation uh, raise similar issues. When it comes to, to business practices, when it comes to workplace practices, when it comes to um, law enforcement, what we see is that values precede the regulations. I mean, the reason why murder is illegal is because it's wrong and it would be wrong even if there were no cops no courts no lawyers no 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 mechanism for punishing people for doing it and and that insight is very powerful when we see that civil society recognizes that that when we have democratically elected legislators what we want them to be doing is making decisions passing laws in accord with our values now we can have debates about what those values are. That's 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 uh, it's undeniable, uh, and reasonable people disagree all the time. But at least we recognize that those beacons come from people trying to decide what the right thing to do is before they decide whether to require it or prohibit it or or permit it. I guess I want to say. Terrific. You mentioned business. Uh, we do live in a capitalist society. And money is often seen as the bottom line. What incentives do businesses, businessmen and women, have to think and act critically? Or ethically, sorry. Well, or both. I mean, look, critical reason it leads you in this direction. We have learned, well, we, we learned a long time ago that, that, that doing doing the right thing is actually a good business strategy. So I suppose if you wanted to hide the fact that you were doing it purely for strategic reasons, you might you might get some, some reflected uh, credit for it. But the fact of the matter is treating workers well is good for business. Not exploiting foreign workers in maquiladoras in, in Central America. Not using child labor and so forth 
not only is, is the right thing to do, then we failing to do those things, but moreover, we've discovered that it actually is good for business and practice and business practice in the long run. It supports development in, in communities in which we otherwise might be tempted. Uh, it makes sure that the people who are buying our stuff, namely that the people who drive the markets, are not put in a position where they believe that by buying a pair of sneakers or a laptop computer, they're contributing to the exploitation of a child, and so on and so forth. So it's, it's a kind of enlightened self-interest for which we have really good empirical evidence. Namely, doing well as a business concern is not incompatible with, with doing the right thing. Um, in talking about ethics and leadership, how are ethics and leadership related? Obviously, not all leaders are ethical and not everything done ethically is through leadership. What are the inherent tensions between ethics and leadership? Well, the, the higher the stakes, the harder it is to be able to say, look, I'm just going to, with my wide-eyed sense of walking around in the world, say, let's just do the right thing. Real ethics is, 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 is heavy lifting. It's balancing values. Um, and sometimes uh, accountability and veracity, values which I think are international, uh, uh, in fact, they may be universal, uh, are in conflict with each other. So leaders of businesses, leaders of governments, leaders of NGOs, leaders of think tanks, leaders of universities, all of whom are in a tight spot when they realize they want to take ethics seriously because it's not simply a matter of opening up the manual, turning to page 42, looking down row A, column B, ah, here's the right answer according to the ethics uh, 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 boffins. Uh, it's that we need to think our way through this. And we might make mistakes. And we might actually come up with a decision that's, that's not, that's not um, that gives us that gives us a, an outcome that is is a therapeutic or even potentially negative, but what leaders do, and I would argue leaders are morally required to do, is is be sincere in taking these issues into account. You send a message in businesses, for example, from the very top. Uh, if if the CEO and the CFO and the CIO and the CNO or blank O doesn't say I care about this, then then you've already started out a bit behind. Uh, when they do send that message and they're sincere, which is a crucial, a crucial uh, uh, point to make, why then they've done, uh, they've gotten themselves off to a good start. There, it's worth mentioning there's nothing more erosive or dispiriting than uh, entities that discover they love using the ethics word, the E word, but are not prepared to, to actually cash that out in any substantive way. Uh, that can be ethics education, it can be uh, ongoing professional development, uh, it can be support for different kinds of activities uh, in the community. Uh, there, there are ways of, of putting, putting one's um, spirit, one's actions, one's sweat where one's mouth is. What led you to found the bioethics program at the University of Miami? And what were the issues of utmost concern to you? So one of the things we've seen evolve over the past uh, quarter century, three decades around the world, but especially in, in North America and Europe, increasingly with our colleagues in Latin America, is the discovery that that there is so much interesting happening in the world of bioethics, or for that matter, business ethics, um, that that when universities pool resources to address them, they can get some beautifully synergistic effects. Uh, bioethics uh, generates some of the, the most heat and some of the greatest light in, in the world of applied ethics. Uh, to be sure, we do journalism ethics, and I'm particularly interested in information technology and ethics. 
Um, we can do governance and ethics. But bioethics raises issues that range from something that, that touches on what some people regard as basic human rights, namely access to healthcare and reducing disparities in healthcare on the one hand, to, to science and science policy that comes from tomorrow's newspaper, namely, what about this stem cell research and how are we to manage the challenges of pharmacogenomics? And what are we going to do if there's not enough uh, influenza vaccine to go around, right? And so, and so what seemed to me, and uh, say along with many others, uh, to be compelling is that this was, this was an opportunity uh, to bring together uh, certain varieties of, of a diverse academic group, um, engage students uh, and a committed administration to say the University of Miami wants to be able to, to, to support this. For, for, for the missions are, are all pretty standard. It's education, it's doing research, it's community service. Uh, we were able thereafter, after actually more than a decade of uh, the, the bioethics program at the University of Miami to, uh, to be able to, uh, to begin working with our colleagues at the World Health Organization. Uh, which has created a, a new collaborating center. That's new anymore, but uh, if, I, if I may. Uh, so the WHO uh, at the time uh, had only two collaborating centers in ethics. One was in Santiago de Chile. Uh, the other was in Toronto. Uh, and we in Miami, partly by virtue of our interest in, in regional issues, but also partly by virtue of the fact that we'd, we'd been working a lot with our colleagues in Latin America and the Caribbean, said, you know something, we'd, we'd like to, f uh, to explore those other, other opportunities for collaboration. And uh, uh, when the WHO approved the University of Miami ethics programs as a collaborating center in ethics and global health policy, it was a chance to begin partnering with the, the two institutions I mentioned in, in Santiago and Toronto, but also now with institutions in Europe, uh, Australia uh, and, uh, and, and elsewhere. And, and uh, we're actually meeting next week in Toronto to begin looking at those issues. For example, very practical international collaborations uh, around the uh, public health ethics and emergency preparedness ethics, uh, response to, to natural and perhaps man-made disasters. It, it can be, for example, uh, uh, the greatest challenge in managing a pandemic may be an ethical challenge. We have to ration resources. We have to triage uh, the delivery of those of those resources. We need to consider isolation and quarantine. Uh, the challenges are are enormous, and reasonable people disagree about these. Which, as I say, is where ethics needs to do its heavy lifting. Uh, we're looking at envir environmental ethics. Uh, the intersection of environmental ethics and bioethics, or environmental health uh, and bioethics, is, is really quite noteworthy. Uh, and as we all watch with slack-jawed horror at this oil spreading from the Gulf of Mexico, um, this is going to affect livelihoods. It may affect health. It would be unusual for, for environmental catastrophe of this magnitude not to affect health, at least indirectly down the line. Um, then we have opportunities um, to, to, to build on these ethics centers, uh, both the many that exist uh, in, in academia and elsewhere, but also through the, through the good offices of the World Health Organization. Terrific. Well, thank you for touching on the preparedness and environmental issues and the other challenges that you will be working uh, with the World Health Organization on in, in coming times. Uh, I would like to turn very briefly to medicine. Could you speak briefly to future trends in medicine and what types of advances in biotechnology and nanotechnology that might revolutionize this industry looking forward 10 to 20 years? So, so in many respects, the history of bioethics has been driven by the history of new technology. Uh, some of the first institutional or hospital ethics committees had the task of deciding who got dialyzed when there was a shortage of machines for hemodialysis. Mm -hmm. 
the machine was great, but there wasn't enough to <laughs> weren't enough of them to go around. Uh, more recently, especially in cases that are quite noteworthy, we've seen the ethical issues turn on the question of either availability or the appropriate use or users of new technology. Every major end-of-life case that we see, Quinlan, Cruzan, Terry Schiavo, uh, is a case about whether, whether physicians and nurses ought to use a technology, and if so, for how long. The future is, is at least as exciting as the past has been. We're looking at, at the intersection of information technology and genetics and genomics technology that makes anybody who thinks they can read the future a fool by definition. Uh, we're, we're the, the, the last decade of research in genetics has seen the sequence and the completion of the human genome, the beginning of pharmacogenomics, whereby doctors and nurses and others will be able to actually customize drugs uh, for individual patients based on their genetic profile, their sub subgroup uh, participation. So, so, uh, so John and, and Juan walk into the clinic together. So they have the same kind of cancer, but it might be they should be getting different titrations or different formulations or different doses of exactly the same drug. That's going to be very exciting. And it's going to be based on, on, on uh, genetics and genomic science. Um, we see that we're not keeping these records on three by five cards anymore, that all of this research is intensely uh, information uh, technology sensitive. Um, so, for example, when, when the Obama administration announces, as it has through the America Reinvestment Recovery Act, uh, a major initiative to, to expand the use of electronic health records, uh, what you're seeing is recognition that we need to get our heads and our hands around these new technologies in order to be able to do the kind of research that's necessary. Uh, imagine doing genetics research by querying a database. Of, of genetic information. Mm -hmm. Now, all these issues, of course, raise exquisitely interesting uh, uh, ethical issues having to do with informed consent, having to do with privacy, having to do with commercialization of the results of these sorts of things. So those are, those are among the few. I, I think the intersection, nanotechnology uh, is, is, you could argue, a subset of information technology, little machines uh, that, do, that do things at the, at the, at the nano and, and even smaller levels are, 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 are really quite exciting. In fact, in fact they, they, they've, they've even given rise to a new subfield of bioethics, namely nanoethics. Wow. Well, as we wrap up, and I know you work at a university, what advice would you give college students on the fundamentals of ethics and leadership, and, and how can they incorporate these recommendations into their daily lives? One of the things that is so exciting about what I get to do at the University of Miami is teach students who, one, think the issues are engaging, and two, realize their practical, the practical utility of ethics in making, in making judgments. Uh, it, it can be in environmental science, it can be in bench research, it can be in physics, it can be in, in biology or medicine. The beauty of it is, in order to be able to advance as a student, you need to be able to write about these things. So you've got a writing assignment. Being able to write clearly and well about, about debates and ethics and public policy, I think is the best writing assignment you can have. So, so it's pedagogically compelling. Uh, and, and obviously the students who write best are the ones who are going to go farther in the long run. That's, that's true even in an era of, uh, of electronic media of the sort that, that we're using right now. That once you do that, you realize that critical thinking is crucial. And so you will, Im uh, uh, unless you're unlucky enough to have an interview or a boss who cares about sound bites, people will appreciate thoughtfulness. They appreciate the fact that, 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 that 
scholars and students who are able to give, who give, uh, so to say, give the due to both sides of an issue are far more effective. We talked about lesson one in writing a term paper, be able to anticipate counter arguments and and, and do so. Um, That it's exciting uh, intellectually, it helps you do good in the world, and frankly, those two things when they line up are really good career goals. It, It is part of a world that's changed that said it's no longer enough to be concerned about your own interests. We need to be thinking seriously about service, thinking seriously about contributions, not in a way that entails any sort of overarching sacrifice, but but more that is, is driven by the fact that we need to do a better job taking care of each other. Dr. Goodman, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more content, visit CSIS.org.